Take your Bibles and go to John chapter 4. We just finished studying the woman of Samaria and uh, the conversation she had with Jesus there at the well, the well of Sychar. She is born again and she becomes his greatest evangelist, doesn't she? She goes back into the town and... uh, She tells everybody, come see a man, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And all those people from the village come out and meet Jesus. And as we looked at it last week, Jesus said, you know, lift up your eyes, look, the fields are white unto harvest. And he told that to his disciples as those people came from the city of Samaria up to greet him. Um, Simple faith and childlike trust. That is the look that saves. Simple faith and childlike trust. I asked him if I could share this this morning because I didn't want to embarrass him, but for, for the last couple of months, Micah Weeks, who was right up here, and I have had a little conversation. Just about the time of Easter, he'd come into church early that Sunday morning, and he found me in my office, and he said, Pastor Tim, just so you know, I've really been thinking about something. I said, oh, okay. That I've really been thinking about asking Jesus to forgive me. I said, well, you keep thinking about that. I'm going to pray with you about it. And we talked a little bit about it. And he'd been conversing with his mom and dad. And, and every once in a while, when, when uh, I'd see him over the last few weeks, I'd say, hey, Mike, I'm just praying for you. And he'd say, I'm still thinking on it. We come in this week. And, uh, and he said, I got something to tell you. And he said, I asked Jesus to forgive me this week. And uh, that was a tremendous blessing, simple faith, childlike trust. And so he was, uh, his mom, Laurel, of course, was singing with me today, praise the Lord, because I was coughing. I don't know why. It's something in my throat, and I'm glad she could sing with me because I ain't much on the singing side. But um, after we got done practice this morning, we always have a word of prayer with the team that's just involved in everything that's going on in a worship service. And we, we were up here, and Michael was up here with his mom. So I said, hey, Michael, would you ask the Lord to bless the worship service today? Now, I didn't know if I was stepping out of turn a little bit to ask him to pray in front of all those adults. But he said, yeah, I can do that. And he was thinking about what he was going to pray. And he, he started into his prayer. He said, I'm not quite sure how to start. And he said, that's okay. God, God don't care, whatever you want to say. And... Uh, Michael lit off right away with this prayer. He said, I pray that you would help everybody to believe in Jesus and to be baptized and follow him. Man, that's a good prayer. Would you pray that with me this morning? Father, I pray that as we come to your word today, if there's someone here today who cannot affirm with an assurance in their heart that it is well with their soul. They've never experienced that gift of amazing grace. Maybe they've just been trying to do everything religious that they could to kind of get you off their back. I pray that Holy Spirit, you would lead them to Calvary this morning. 
and that with simple faith and childlike trust, that individual would be saved. Bless us in your word. Lord, I know most of us know you. As we look in your word today, I pray that you would challenge us who know you. That, Lord, we would go deeper. We would not be content to just be superficial in our commitment to you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me in John chapter 4. As I said, we just finished up with the woman of the well. And Jesus is now going back to Galilee. We're going to read this text in two portions. So we're going to study the first part, and then we'll look at the story. But if you look with me in verse 43, it says this, After the two days, so remember, Jesus stays there in Sychar with all these people who the woman of the well had brought to him. He stays there for two days and he ministers to them. And he reveals himself to these people. And many of them believe in him. It's, almost, it's like a tremendous revival in this town, this town of Sychar. And after two days, he leaves. He leaves. He goes back to Galilee. This is northern Israel. It's above the hill country of Samaria, up by the Sea of Galilee. It's that region, that homeland of Jesus where he has been born and where he spent his childhood and where he was a carpenter. And so he returns there. And it says in verse 44, and I want you to note this, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee... The Galileans welcomed him. Now, how do those two phrases go together? Jesus testified, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. But when he comes to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Having seen everything he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. And then in verse 46, he came again to Cana in Galilee where he made the water wine. We'll stop in the text there. We'll finish the chapter and just to, as we go through the study. But I want to begin by just thinking about the portions of this text. And what we're going to look at is we look at this text, beginning in verse 43 and going to the end of the chapter, there's two things that we want to note. The first thing that's in this is there is an overview of Jesus' early Galilean ministry. John devotes all of three verses to this period of Jesus' ministry. But if you took your Bible this morning and you went to the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the books we call the Synoptic Gospels, you would see that the vast amount of their material in those three Gospels fits in these three verses. The Sermon on the Mount, all kinds of stuff. And John condenses it into just three verses because of the purpose of his book. So most of what is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
in an extended narrative is condensed into this very short portion of the book of John. So we're going to look at a big part of the gospel narrative in about 10 minutes this morning. The second thing that we're going to see this morning is we are going to see a specific instance that John draws out of the early Galilean ministry that Matthew, Mark, and Luke never mention. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention a ton of miracles, don't they? Uh, Remember the, the situation when Jesus is teaching in Capernaum. And there's a huge crowd around the house. And yet there's a guy that has been lame. And four of his friends want to bring him to Jesus, and they can't figure how to get through the crowd and get this man to Jesus to be healed. So what did they do? They went up on the housetop, right? Remember, in Palestine, the, 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 the houses are flat. So they go up onto the top of the house, and they move the tiles, and they break apart the roof, and they lower their friend to Jesus right in front of him, and Jesus heals that man. Now, John doesn't mention that story, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. In John, we have one specific instance of Jesus' interaction with a person in this period we call his early Galilean ministry. And it is the healing of a court official's son. And we'll study that this morning. Jesus says a prophet has no honor in his hometown. He testifies that. That is also mentioned, by the way, in Matthew and in Luke. And we'll look at that in a minute. But what we want to think about here for a minute is that it tells us in this text that Jesus was welcomed when he comes back to Galilee. But when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see what this welcome is all about. Now, one of the things you will note about Jesus is ministry in this period is that Jesus was immensely popular. He was immensely popular because of the miracles that he did and the things that he taught. So in Matthew 13, it tells us that the common people who were listening to Jesus teach on the kingdom of God were hanging on his words. They were like on the edge of their seat, hanging on everything he said. And the reason was because he taught as one who had an authority, not like the scribes that they were used to listening to. So Jesus was immensely popular because of what he did and what he taught. However, the leadership of the synagogue and of the region resisted him and ultimately rejected him. There's another thing you see here, and it's this. And by the way, we could all sign our name to this one. Many people tended to come to Jesus in a time of crisis. They saw him break the bread and the fishes and feed 5,000. 
Man, this would be a good gig to have as a king. They want to make him king. They see him heal the sick. Many people tended to come to Jesus in a time of crisis, but when they actually heard his message later, when Jesus really gets deep with them, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If you really want to win, then you must lose. You must lay it all down. You must count the cost. Any man that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. And when people tended to hear the ramifications of what Jesus was all about, many people tended to say, well, that's not what I signed up for. It's still true today. It's even true of us as believers, isn't it? Sometimes when everything's good, it's easy to just kind of float in our spiritual experience. When things get tough, we run to Jesus. We need answers. We need answers to prayer. And sometimes we don't hear from heaven the way we think we should. This reminds us of something about ourselves. C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. He said, in other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs to be improved. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. What's wrong with me? God's not just doing like a home improvement project on me. No. When he saved me, he is transforming me into a new creation in Christ, and he is radically dealing with the depravity of my soul. I am a rebel who must lay down my arms. And that is what Jesus requires. And many people don't like that. So, in this early Galilean ministry, we will see that it is a time of immense popularity because of his miracles and teaching. It is also a time of initial opposition. And why is there initially opposition to Jesus? Number one, because he says, I am God. I am God. Now, if you meet somebody at the airport walking around in a white flowing robe, remember them people? Maybe that's back in the 80s when I used to fly a lot. You know, and they'd be walking around with their head shaved and giving out flowers and other things. I'm God. What do you think of that person? Lock them up. Okay? Somebody that claims they're God is not just a good teacher or a good person. Unless they truly are what? Who they claim to be. Jesus was not. Jesus does not. There again, C.S. Lewis does a great job on this point in mere Christianity. Jesus does not leave us the option that he was just a good moral teacher. No, he was either a lunatic or he is the Lord. He's God. 
He also said, the law is under me. I wrote it. So he set the standards for what they could do on the Sabbath, and he began to roll back the dietary restrictions. And there was a lot of people who didn't like that. And he said, the kingdom is mine. And so those things begin to bring some opposition and then ultimately lead to the cross. Think with me of two other times when Jesus testifies the same thing as what we saw here. So in Luke chapter 4, we have this story where Jesus goes to his hometown, Nazareth. It's the town where he had been brought up. So this is really his hometown. It's his country. And as was usual, he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolls the scroll. He finds the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. There's a protracted quote there in the Gospel of Luke from Isaiah the prophet about the ministry of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. And then after reading that, he says, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. And everybody in the synagogue was speaking well of him. They're turning to their neighbor. Rah, rah, this is Jesus. This is our hometown guy. They were all speaking well of him, and they were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? So then he said to them, well, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. So all we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do that also here in your hometown. And then he talks about Naaman the leper and the widow of Zarephath. And what happened? When they heard this, man, think about how fickle people are. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. And they take him by the scruff of the neck and they take him out of town to hurl him over a cliff. Hometown guy. And when they're ready to kill him, Jesus looks up and just walks away. And nobody can touch him. In Matthew 13, after preaching a sermon, he goes to his hometown. He began to teach in their synagogue. And they were astonished. They said, how did this wisdom and these miracles come to him? This is the little guy that used to run around the synagogue. How did it come to him? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Jude? The sisters, aren't they all with us? By the way, that verse really kills the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, right? I mean, it like shoots it bad. So where does he get all these things? And they were offended. Jesus said to them, prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his household. And he did not do many miracles there 
because of their unbelief. Now, let's go on in the text and look at an illustration of Jesus' early Galilean ministry. He comes to Cana in Galilee. It is the town from John 2 where Jesus had turned water into wine. Up the road in Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Have you ever had a child? I praise God I have not had to go through this. Had a child who was on the point, at the point of death because of an illness. Mom and dad are desperate. They're desperate. This man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee. He went to him in Cana. He asked him specifically to come down to Capernaum to heal his son. And it says here in the text, his boy is standing at the door of death. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That was not the answer the guy was hoping for. Right? He's desperate. He needs a word from God. He needs a miracle now. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official says back to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Notice that text, or that, that um, tense in the text. I don't got a lot of time to do this, but it's amazing to me how every miracle of Jesus is different. And how everything that Jesus does is very individual. Some people, when Jesus healed them, it was like immediate, done deal. So, in Capernaum... Simon Peter's mother-in-law was ill. Remember that? She's dying of a fever. Jesus touches her and heals her, and the fever left. And what did she immediately do in the text? She did like all all you women do. She got up and fixed some food. Right? We got to have something to eat. And she did it immediately. This guy, or this kid, Jesus heals him. But he's recovering. It's protracted. So the fever leaves and he's getting better. But not all of the effects of this disease have immediately left. He's still wore out. He's still tired. He's still healing. Every time Jesus heals someone, it's always an individual thing. Now notice what also happens. So he asked them, this servant, 
the hour. Notice that, the hour, when he began to get better. They said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. Now notice this. It's the only place in the Gospels where it talks about a household conversion. Does it a lot in the book of Acts. He himself believed with all his house. That's his servants included, not just his children. That's the force of the word house, his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, let's run through this real quick. Here's the main details. Number one, it is at Cana where he turns water into wine earlier. From Capernaum, an official comes, and it is a 16-mile journey. Now, he doesn't hop on his motor scooter, and he doesn't get there on his side-by-side. He has to do what? He either has to ride an animal or walk, and it's 16 miles. What's it here to Alpine? Probably close to that, isn't it? I mean, close to that. He has a long walk ahead. He goes 16 miles when he hears of Jesus. This is a court official of Herod. Herod is the ruler of Judea, or excuse me, of Galilee under Rome. So this is kind of like the the Jewish side of the governance of Galilee, and it's all under the umbrella of Rome, who it, they are within the empire. So he is a court official of Herod. His son is dying, and the father is desperate. Father's desperate. Now Jesus corrects the deficiency in the man's faith. And this is going to be the meat of the message in just a minute. If there's anything you get out of it, it's going to be in the next couple of minutes. So wake up. <laughs> Come down. What did the guy say? Come down. And Jesus said what? Unless you see the vision or the, the miracle, signs and wonders, you won't believe. Come down. Notice this. This is what the guy is asking Jesus to do. And Jesus replies, unless you see the miracle, you won't believe. The guy replies what? Come down, my son is dying. What does Jesus say? Go your way, your son lives. And it tells us in the text what? The man believed the word that Jesus spoke. The man leaves. He is met by a servant who relays the good tidings, and the whole family believes. Now, here is the key question. Okay, this is the message in a moment. This is what Jesus is driving at. With this guy. Can you imagine if you went to Jesus 
and you are desperate. I mean, you are desperate. My kid is dying. There's no other recourse to save his life. I mean, you're uptight. You are worried. Come down, heal my son. I know you can do it. And Jesus looks at you and says, unless you see, you won't believe. Oh, would that not take the wind out of your sails? What are you going to do? Turn and walk away? I'll go find another shaman? What are you going to do? What does the guy do? He comes back at Jesus. Now, this is a revelation of the guy's face, isn't it? Amen. When Jesus kind of puts up a little bit of a barrier, the guy goes right through it. He pushes on. But here's the key question. Will I believe Jesus when he speaks a word and I haven't seen it fulfilled? That's what this guy has to do. What does the guy say? Jesus says to him what? Go. Your sin lives. Did he see it? Did Jesus come down and do it? No. He is leaving and going home based on what? The word that Jesus spoke. This week, a giant of the evangelical movement in America and in the world went home to be with the Lord. His name is Tim Keller. Three years he's been struggling with pancreatic cancer, and the Lord took him home this week. I watched an excerpt from a message that he gave last night. And he was talking about the Word of God. And what he said was so powerful. You know, will I take him at his word? And, and, and what Tim said was this in this message. Is when God speaks, it happens. God's word is not like our word. Tim Keller makes this point. When I speak, it merely expresses my intention. Honey, I'm going to go out and feed the horses. But to feed the horses, I got to get up off the couch and go out and act, right? So I speak and it expresses my intention. But if it's got to happen, I got to do it, right? There's got to be follow through. That's the way it works with us as humans. We speak and we do. It's baloney if you speak and you don't do it, correct? It's baloney. But listen, God is not that way. When he speaks, it is done. When he says, let there be light, there's light. When he says, let all the planets and all the stars appear, kaboom, they're there. The word of God is power. And it brings into reality what he expresses and what he desires. He does it by his word. Will I believe Jesus based on what he has said? Whether or not I see it, whether or not he comes or not, 
Will I trust him when I have not seen it fulfilled? This man's faith. Now think with me about this guy's faith. Jesus does correct the deficiency in his faith, but he has faith. He hears Jesus is in Cana. He journeys 16 miles to find him. He requests him to come. By every measure, that guy's faith is remarkable. But Jesus takes him deeper. And I'll say that to you, my friend. I don't care where you think you are on the journey of knowing God and knowing Christ. He will mess up your world and take you deeper. And that's what Jesus does to this guy. He has remarkable faith to do these things. And yet Jesus says, okay, will you take me at my word? Will you take me at, your word, at my word? The spillover is a believing household. Now, I don't know that it's true or not, but many people believe there's a connection between Luke 8 and what we just studied. It tells us this in Luke 8. Talking about Galilee and the ministry of Jesus. Soon afterward, he was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him and some women. Women who had been healed by evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary called Magdalene. Seven demons had come out of her as well as Joanna, the wife, and I'll probably butcher the name, Cusa, Herod's steward. Herod's steward's got a job, but his wife didn't. And she went with Jesus and supported the ministry of Jesus from their possessions. Is there a link there? I don't know. Could be. It's kind of amazing to think that we would talk about a court official of Herod in the very same region and wonder how he came to know Jesus. And maybe that's what we see in John 4. But nevertheless, we see this spillover. There is a believing household. What happens to this man does not just stay with him. It spills down to his kids and to everyone within his circle of influence. Jesus challenged this man. He corrected him. It almost sounded harsh, didn't it? Didn't it almost sound harsh? And yet Jesus took him deeper. If God never does that to you, you probably are worshiping the wrong God. Tim Keller said it this way. Again, I was listening to him and he said these words. Only if your God can outrage and challenge you will you know you worship the real God and not a figment of your own imagination. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself.
If God just always does what you want him to do, if he's just kind of your genie in a bottle to give you what you want, he may not be really the God of the Bible. That's not how Jesus treated people. To know him is to love him. To know him is to walk with him. But don't let anybody fool you. It's not an easy walk. And he will take you on some hard roads. And you will feel desperate at times. My son is dying. Whatever that situation is that drives you to him. And he says to you, will you take me at my word? Let's pray. Lord, we are people who are so prone to idolatry. Like Tim Keller said in this quote, we actually worship ourselves, an idealized version of who I am. We make God in our image. Lord Jesus, in your gracious and kind way, roll back the fallacy of our thinking. And take us deeper. Lord Jesus, show us that you are sufficient, that you are good, that you are God. May we love you and serve you. Lord, Micah prayed this morning before the service began that people would believe in Jesus. I pray, Father, that if there's someone here who has never put their hope and trust in Jesus, that you would answer Micah's prayer and our prayer and save them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing as we close.